0: Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see everyone, though I I confess that it was, uh, it's been a miserable experience to think about with an open, open possibilities of what to speak on this morning when Keith shared with us and said, just whatever you feel burdened to speak, uh, Monday night, it's 1130 at night, I'm in the office, at the house I have a piece of paper with chicken scratch on it in 10 different sermon directions, and I'm feverishly praying, God, direct my eyes, let the pencil stop rolling and point to one of these messages, and so, uh, but we've landed in Psalm 95, so if you would turn there with me, we're going to get started. I'm just going to read verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, teach us how to praise. Father, those who are here among us who are downcast, Lord, give them hope. For those who are dry and dispassionate, Lord, energize and give them a heart full of gratitude. Motivate each one of us to answer your summons to sing to the glory of your name, to rejoice in your presence. Do that and we will give you praise. Amen. Well, the series was framed to us uh, by Keith that if if there was something that people came to Lakeview and you wanted them to experience, what would that be? And a number of things came to mind. Uh, Obviously, to see... The glorious gospel is at the center of our call. Together as a church, we've heard both CJ and Danny pick up on that theme strongly. Another real tempting message was to talk about the absolute importance of cultivating an appetite for God's word. And we need that, how deeply we need God's word to sustain us, to instruct us, to encourage us, to train us in righteousness, to equip us for every good work as we live out our lives together as a church. But one other thing that loomed large in my heart as I was thinking and praying about this was that I want each of us to come here and as we sing to God for there to be the distinct impression that God gathers with us, and that God loves his singing people. Just to give you some background, I was raised in a Christian home. My dad founded and pastored a church just about three blocks from here, on the corner of 14th and Train. And it was a small little church, maybe 60, 70, 80 people at the most. We all knew each other. We almost didn't ever have any visitors <laughs> And that's where I was raised. My dad pastored there. Uh, my grandpa was a pastor. My brother is a pastor. My uncle is a pastor. My brother in law is a pastor. My grandma on my dad's side was even a pastor <laughs> of a sweet little flock. And I say that almost not metaphorically. They were, all had white hair. Uh, They were widows up in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and they would gather in this little white chapel just outside of the metroplex of Tecumseh, uh, Oklahoma, if you've ever heard of that. And uh, they would get some of the most, uh, it was culture shock to walk into that church and see some of the things. Nanny, you never knew what Nanny was going to say, who she was going to ask to come up and sing that special you sang four weeks ago. And uh, just call them out. And, and, you know, they're at that age where you can't put me on the spot and force me. So they would just nod no. So one time we were in the service, she just said, no, I don't want to sing that. Uh, just, just straight up church, as straight up as it gets uh (laughs) growing up in church and and experiencing the life of the body together and seeing a singing church and doing jericho marches together and uh, i have so many vivid memories Uh, i remember one man he was named wayne jordina and uh, he wore these white shoes and uh, they looked like the kind of shoes that would m- be made by a person who makes baskets. I don't know what you call those kind of shoes, but they were like meshed, basket-looking shoes. And he would, uh, he had such a joy and a radiance on his countenance as he worshipped. I have many memories of just seeing him. He sat right over there. I was on the second pew on the right. He was on the second pew on the left. And I would just glance over, and his arms were just thrown up into the air, and his face was tilted uh, Toward God, and he was singing, and many times he was weeping, and sometimes he was weeping and singing and dancing. And he would do the old dance where you kick your leg out like this. Some of you have done that before back in the day. And there was such joy in his countenance. I remember just being drawn to look at some of them in the context of our time of singing. My mom played uh, the Hammond B3 organ. And that was the main instrument in our corporate worship time. That instrument, for those of you who aren't familiar, that's the staple instrument in black gospel music, which is still one of my favorite styles of music. And so mom led from the Hammond C3, and sometimes she'd tune dad up while he was preaching. Uh, Those were sweet, sweet times. (laughs) So Julie, would you come up and just kind of help me out? Yeah. (laughs) We're going to go back a ways this morning. (laughs) I sat next to Sister Melinda Taylor every Sunday and she sang alto from the first note to the last note. I never heard her sing the melody. That's how I learned how to sing alto, sitting next to Sister Melinda. And the only time I'd ever hear her sing the melody was when dad would ask her to come up and sing one of his favorites. And she would sing, the blood will never lose its power. And his eyes on the sparrow. And it'd just make your hair stand up. And dad would have his hanky and just be wiping his eyes the whole time. Corporate singing in the gathered body is nothing short of a gift of grace. And I pray that we experience it to the fullest together. Look at this quote from Reggie Kidd to get us started. Pilgrims on the way, we are called to give up everything for the sake of the gospel's call. But our pilgrimage is a pilgrimage of joy and it needs to be carried by song too many of us it seems to me are trying to make it through all this with tight jaws pursed lips and angry spirits listen we are ready to die the martyr's death but we have not learned to sing the martyr's song your bible is full of songs there are 150 songs right in the middle of the Bible that's on your lap right now. <clears throat> but songs are woven into the, into the story of God's people from ancient times. What did the people of Israel do? Right after they crossed the Red Sea and there are Egyptian bodies still bobbing on the water. And Moses leads the whole congregation to sing. I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. The Lord, my God, my strength, my song, and he has now become my salvation. The conquest of Canaan, Deborah, and Barak lift their voice in song. Again and again throughout the history of God's people in the temple, in the tabernacle. And those are massive days of celebration and song and praise and choirs and horns and instruments and singers a couple of years ago we made our first pivot music video and so all the pivot people who could make it out we went out to the end of william's boulevard and we were out there to to make a music video to symbolize our Trip up to the New Attitude Conference, and the New Attitude Conference catch line was save the wheel, forget reinvention. And so we changed the words of staying alive to The Wheel is Alive. Eric and I went over to Susanna Curtis's home studio and sang like girls for about an hour, overdubbing our voices over the bee Gees, singing The Wheel is Alive, and then we brought that. Boom box out and pivot together with various theatrically gifted members from across the church body, including Linda L. and Trudy Morris and many others, A.J. DeSherry. We all got out there and tried to walk on beat and all of this. Uh, and at one point when we were actually doing uh, the video, we're about to shoot a scene. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with shooting or producing films... Uh, <laughs> shooting Shooting is what happened when we pressed the record button on our camcorder, and so uh, we 're we're shooting this scene with this this woman and and she says, Wait, just a second before before we shoot the scene what 's my motivation <laughs> I, I had no idea what she was talking about i 'd never heard that phrase before well, are, are you depressed? Is this a pastoral moment here what's, what 's What's going on? And I still am not sure what that means. But my guess is that she was saying, put me in the moment. Am I hurried? Am I frantic? Am I uh, distracted? Am I a diva? Am I ditzy? Put me in the moment. Gear me up for, for what's about to happen. And there's a wonderful sense in which the Bible, God in his word, gears us up to sing to him. Throughout the Psalms, he gears his people up to shout praises to him, to lift their voice, to make melodies, to dance, to bow before him in reverence. All of that, he he gears us up. And he does that not by simply saying, sing, I've commanded you to sing, sing. It's not a mere sacred obligation to gather and sing to God. Because the summons to sing contains promises of grace, God is here in these moments, and he desires us to experience him. Psalm 22 says something that may be familiar to many of us. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean something as crass as to say that our songs somehow put God on the throne. Think about about the image of a throne. Think about the symbolism of a throne. What does a throne say? What does it say when a king is on his throne? What that means is that, that God is ready and eager to manifest himself in his majestic holiness. He is eager to manifest himself in his gracious provision for his people. And to manifest himself in his glorious Presence and his sovereign rule as his people look away from themselves to him in praise. In other words, when God says, Sing, he is eagerly waiting to reveal himself to his people. And I want us to look at several passages this morning and observe the ways in which God communicates his grace to us in song. First, sing and see. God's holiness and grace. If you'll turn with me to Psalm chapter 15. We are not very far in the Psalms before we are met by a holy God who does not regard sin as casually as we do. You can see that in Psalm chapter 1 where immediately he identifies the person as blessed who doesn't sit casually with sin. Who doesn't kick back and throw his feet up with scoffers and people who mock God. The blessed life is the one that looks with reverent obedience to God and bows before his word and meditates on it day and night. And then it talks about the wicked and what they receive. And God comes in judgment. And then in chapter 2, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So there is a note of sobriety right at the beginning of the Psalter. And that continues. When God brought Israel out of Egypt by Moses. If you remember they were a sojourning people they were nomads and they would travel and they would they would as the as the cloud would move by day and the pillar of fire would move by night and when that cloud stopped they made camp and all the tents went up as far as the eye could see there would be tents of all the tribes of Israel and in the center of all those tents was God's tent and that's where the ark was and and I'm sure the kids, the little boys, would probably be in their tents throughout that area, and they would be talking around the campfire and saying, Man, wouldn't it be cool to spend the night in God's tent? That would be so... No, what about to live in God's tent? That'd be so awesome. Yeah, you know, God's cool. And they'd be thinking about this and dreaming about that kind of thing. And, and then Psalm 15 really answers the curious question of every curious Hebrew child, Lord, who shall stay over in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now the answer to this question, which follows from verse 2 until the end of the chapter, is not encouraging. Follow along with me. These are the standards for the one who can stay over in God's tent. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And speaks truth in his heart. You can see the kids' faces starting to sour already. (laughs) Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And whose eyes a vile person is despised. But honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest. And does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Translation God's tent is not open for us to just wander in and out of. God's tent can be stayed over in by a man who is pristinely holy. The New Testament answers this question who shall stay over in God's tent? Who lives this pristinely holy life? And the New Testament's answer to the question is Jesus Christ can sojourn in God's tent and Him alone. Jesus Christ, who has perfectly obeyed the Father as a man, came as a man, obeyed the Father perfectly, He could stay over in God's tent. And those who repent of their sins and put their trust in Him enter into God's tent in and through Jesus Christ. Apart from that. God's tent is not a pleasant place to visit. The pure in heart shall see God, yes. But the impure in heart don't want to. God is holy. God does not. Habakkuk one thirteen says he doesn't tolerate wickedness. And he can't even look on evil. God is radically holy in ways that we can't even conceive. One man was asked the question, a scholar, many years ago. They said, what's the difference between heaven and hell? He said, hell is eternity in the presence of God. Heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator. We need the intercession and the mediator ministry of Jesus Christ to enter into the presence of God. Without it, there's no way to approach the holiness of God. God's majestic holiness coupled with Christ's work of redemption are the dominant themes of heaven's worship when we read the book of Revelation. And that's why when we gather, the dominant theme on any given Sunday, no matter what the message is about are these themes. God is holy. God is great. God is awesome. He is high above all things. There is no other God beside him. Our joy is in him alone. He is our treasure. He has made us. He has redeemed us by his blood. His grace is the most glorious thing we've ever seen, and we're amazed by it. And we're debtors to his mercy for as long as we live and into eternity. We'll sing those songs forever and ever and ever. Seeing God's holiness and his mercy in Christ will cause us to feel humbled, amazed, and grateful. Turn to Psalm 77. Verse one. I cry aloud to God. Allowed to God. And he will hear me. In the day of my trouble I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God I moan. When I meditate my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I can't speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. Verse 6. I said. Let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. There's a range in Scripture, in the language of praise in the Bible, that is more than just energetic, enthusiastic joy. There's gut-wrenching pain in the Psalms matter of fact, many scholars will point out that of all the five divisions of the book of Psalms is divided into five books. Of all the divisions of the books, the largest section of types of uh, psalms are the lament psalms. Are psalms that are marked by a cry of anguish, a cry for mercy, a cry from a dry or difficult season of life. And there are people in this room who are singing this song right now, and that 's okay. The Bible knows where you are, God knows where you are it 's okay to sing a song of lament it 's okay to sing a song of the brokenness of your spirit, of your heart, before God, of your desperate need, where, where the psalmist said, "Lord, I've yearned for you as in a dry and thirsty land, and there 's no water, and i 've looked for you in the sanctuary." And then at other points in the Psalms, it says, we, we come in and we remember what it used to be like to sing in your presence. And they said, our, our harps were hung on the willows. How should we sing the song of the Lord in Babylon? We're in exile. And yet there are many Psalms that are actually written from the exile. Why? Because God is gracious to not only give us songs of joy, but to give us a song in the night give us songs that breed hope while we wait expectantly one author called it the spark of anticipated gladness that i'm not glad in my heart yet but i trust that god will yet revive me and give me life persecuted christians from the new testament until the present time there's been an intriguing relationship between the persecuted church and martyrs and singing Many of them would sing, even as the kindling was being lit beneath their feet, they would start to sing hymns. If you go to Acts chapter 16, you see this amazing thing. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. And what do you hear as the text zooms in on what's going on in that prison? It zooms in, and on its way in, it lets you see the clock. It's midnight in the prison cell. And what do you hear but the singing of Paul and Silas? jailhouse worship. These guy's singing to God, hoping in God, rejoicing in God in spite of their difficulties. Even suffering can't repress God's song in our hearts. Our daughter, Ellie, just about, this has faded out maybe the last six months or so, but For a while, we were in the season where if we would cross her will and she was asking to play with something or to go out and do something with the friends down the street, if we would cross her will and say, no, she couldn't do that, she would nod, you know, acquiescing, okay, that's fine. And then she would turn around and would head in the other direction and she would sing about what she couldn't do. I kid you not. And sometimes we would, I would follow her and I could hear her singing, They won't let me play with my dolls. I can't go down the street ever again. And she's, i just listening to this. She's singing the blues. We had a little blues singer. <laughs> you know, the Psalms sing the blues. The songs are familiar with the blues when people just... They look up to God and they say, God, where are you? God, come through for me. God, my affliction is great. God, I feel my bones aching. They feel like I'm about to break in half. God, all I see in front of me is my sin. Would you show me your mercy? You cause my soul to live again towards you. Am I going to die in the dust here? Is the dust going to praise you? The Psalms are full of this language of agony and languish, and what hope does that give to us when we go through times of suffering? There's nothing wrong with that song. Sufferers need songs too. In other words, it's the Godword song itself. That signals to us that we still have hope in God. Because when we have given in to despair completely, we stop singing. We quit. I'm done. I'm bitter. I'm angry. Enough with you. Look what you've given me. Look what I'm going through. Where were you when life fell apart? Right? The songs are familiar with that sound. And yet he's still singing to God. Carl Truman, a British historian and scholar, wrote the following, I would like to make just one observation. The Psalms, the Bible's own hymn book, have almost entirely dropped from view in the contemporary Western evangelical scene. I'm not certain about why this should be, but I have an instinctive feel that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of the Psalter is taken up with lamentation, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Sure, people still feel these things, but to admit that they are a normal part of one's everyday life is tantamount to admitting that one has failed in today's health, wealth, and happiness society. Few Christians in areas where the church has been strongest over recent decades, China, Africa, Eastern Europe, would regard uninterrupted emotional highs as normal Christian experience. This song, this song of anguish and pain allows us to remove the mask of fake joy that sometimes we bring into the church. Plastic joy that only lasts for two hours and then we go home and we're miserable as anything. This song goes bone deep. It goes through that. It breaks the mask off our face and says, Biblical joy doesn't say that you have to stop crying. Biblical joy says, God, you will yet cause my soul to rejoice in your presence, even if the circumstances don't change. Remember in the Psalms where it says, Lord, I would have lost heart. Unless I had believed that I would, again, see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Hear that anticipation, that waiting patiently, that expecting God will yet sustain me in the night of my trials. Psalm 103 allows us to sing this. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But, listen to this, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Seeing God as comforter and refuge leads the suffering singer to hope in God and wait expectantly. Thirdly, sing and grow in self-giving unity. The author, Reggie Kidd, he he wrote a book called With One Voice, Discovering Christ's Song in Our Worship. One of the main ideas of the book is that we shouldn't think and equate our favorite sound of worship, style of worship, with godliness. That God is glorified through a diverse range of the songs of his people from every tribe and tongue and nation and culture that God loves the sound of his people when they sing and it doesn't just have to be today's modern sound. God loves it all. He loves the mix. He's his glorious diversity is communicated as we sing and we learn to sing other people's songs other christians songs so He talks about how god is glorified through bach bubba and the blues brothers <laughs> these three ways and, and he talks about specifically how christ in particular is manifested in Bach's music in a way that he's not manifested in bubba and the blues brothers music and and that goes all the way around the sense in which Jesus Christ glorifies himself through other kinds of music as we sing. It's inspired by a vision to see the church unified in our appreciation of our God given diversity in worship. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's a biographical quote about his own life and his own experience in congregational worship. So it's an interesting eye in on uh, seeing C.S. Lewis in the congregation singing. Look at this. When I first became a Christian, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology and wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls. I disliked very much their hymns, which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. <laughs> uh, that's probably what you would think if he came here, unfortunately. <laughs> but as I went on, I saw the merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just six-rate music, (laughs) were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit <laughs> you might be here and you say i don't like folksy music guitars have no majesty there's no reverence in a guitar strum give me pipes right some of you might say i don't like classical music it's too highbrow. i don't understand it it's not easy for me to follow the melody lines of all that it's too ornate draws too much attention to itself Others might say, I don't like old-timey hymns. Can you say hokey? Obviously, at this moment, I'm thinking of our younger crowd, which, you know, our culture says to young people, let me just speak to young people in particular, because I think this is, style is king often with young people. Our culture wants you to jump in the back seat of the van, put your iPod on, and listen to your favorite songs on the way to vacation. God's word says sometimes your little sister or grandma gets to pick the music. And we all get to listen in on the same song. And we all get to sing the hokey song. You think it's hokey? The song that you think is really cool, the Switchfoot song, the whoever the latest band is song. Sing them all. You know what? When we gather together, if we sing a hymn, and next week we're going to sing four of them. When we gather together to sing a hymn, if it's not your favorite hymn, if you think it's a hokey hymn, You glorify God through your humility when you not only tolerate it, but lift your arms and sing it with enthusiasm and joy because other people are being served and they love that music. And there are all kinds of musical expressions in this room and God is glorified in some way, particularly in all of them. So let's humble ourselves as a church body. It might be that, Lord willing, down the road, we got somebody who can scratch on a record up here and we do a little DJ stuff on one Sunday morning. And you know what? God can even be glorified through that. Or maybe like Nanny's Church where they had 10 guitar players sitting on boots, (laughs) snakeskin boots, chairs, and guitars. My Uncle Pug was one of them. And they sang country, wonderful, old hymns. And it was sweet. And God loved the praise of those people. Those sweet saints. Let me just add a disclaimer here. We are limited musicians here. So we're going to, as any church, is going to have a stylistic center. Something that we can pull off more easily. We, we don't have a whole lot of classically trained musicians. Lord willing... In five, ten years, we will have classically trained musicians, and maybe the beginning of the worship time will be a massive string ensemble. Oh, I would love that. God, do that. Bring that. Bring Bach here. I would love to hear that and see that, and God would be glorified in that. Reggie Kidd writes, I've concluded that it must be our singing Savior's delight to make one fellowship resonate more with Bach's voice and another Bubba's. And it must bring him satisfaction to grace. One fellowship with a heap of Blues Brothers gifts and a dash of Bubba and another with a boatload of Bubba and a sprinkling of Bach. A style of music should not be bigger in our eyes than the holiness and grace and comforting nearness and sovereign rule of God. That's why we began by saying sing and see God. Our songs and our styles are not the same thing as worship. Don't go to another church and hear them playing with a pipe organ and say it's dead. Please don't use that terminology. It's not dead just because it's a pipe organ and there's no electric guitar or drum set. God loves the singing of those Presbyterian saints that we evacuated to Gustav and we sat in First Presbyterian Church. And I was the only guy in a t-shirt and shorts because it's all I evacuated with and I sang those hymns, and I didn't know a one of them, and I'm looking at my sheet trying to read sheet music to sing those songs, and I was tearing up just thinking, Lord, you love the sound of this singing. Songs or styles don't take us into God's presence, and they don't keep us out of God's presence. Jesus, not music, is the one mediator between God and men. And we've got to take that to the bank and believe it every Sunday morning. Growing in tangible expressions of humility, we display God-glorifying unity to a world that is individualistic, self-serving, and fragmented. Turn to Hebrews in closing. Hebrews chapter 2, reading from verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, to call us brothers. Saying, this is Jesus saying this. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And he lifts this quote from Psalm 22. It was written anywhere from 1,500 to 500 years before Jesus was alive. And yet, Hebrews attributes this quote to Jesus. There is a very real sense in which, as David Pallison, the author David Pallison writes, the Psalms were for Jesus. He is both the king to whom the songs are sung, and he is the quintessential psalmist. He is the one who suffers. He is the one who is scorned and mocked. He is the one ultimately who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everyone else, the psalmists who were walking through their own trials or running from bad guys and and pagan nations running after them. Those were inklings of what Jesus would ultimately experience as the true psalmist who sings, who throws himself in trust on his God, on his Father. And here, he is the one who says, I will be in the congregation telling them of the Father the ultimate worship leader in the gathering who enables us to know the Father. It says he tells us the Father's name and the one who leads our song of adoration is Christ himself. Barbershop quartets often talk about the the fifth voice. When the four of them sing and they sing certain kind of chords and they sing in a room that's got a certain amount of bounce off and they lock their pitches in just right and they hear the fifth voice it's an aural illusion created by harmonics and i don't know all the technical details but somehow it happens that it sounds like there's another voice in addition to the four voices in a very real sense when we gather we are not the only ones singing and we're not the only church singing there are churches all over the world singing the praise of god some of them are underground in china Whispering their songs so that the authorities don't hear them. And there are people throughout this world who love the Savior, singing His glory. And not only them, angels in heaven, innumerable hosts before the throne of God, singing. And not only that, but God Himself is singing. We find when we read the Bible that God is a singing God. Zephaniah 3.17, he sings over us. He spins wildly over us with joy. God the Father is a singing God. God the Son comes in Hebrews chapter 2 and he comes into the midst of the congregation. He tells us of the Father and he sings with us in the Father's praise. And then what happens with the Spirit when he comes and fills us in Ephesians 5 verse 19? The Spirit fills and out comes song. God is a singing God. He loves his singing people. If you've repented of your sins, you've put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you do not have God's wrath aimed at you. You don't have the imposing threat of Psalm 15 verse 2 through 7 aimed at you. You have a God who loves you fiercely. He's passionate for his people. He loves it when we sing. He loves to hear his people rejoice and look to him in suffering and through tears say, I trust you. God loves that and he's singing over us. Are you listening for that? When you gather here and we're singing together, is it just another song or do you hear God himself singing over us? John Owen said, We can do our Father no greater unkindness than to disbelieve that He loves us. So we gather and we praise Him and we sing to Him and we hear Him singing over us His love, His mercy, His benevolence, His generosity. He sings that over His people. Reggie Kidd says, it's only when we understand his, that's Christ's presence in the church as being the fulfillment of God's promise in Zephaniah 3.17, to quiet you with his love and to rejoice over you with singing, that a crucial aspect of our salvation comes into perspective. Jesus didn't. Coldly set, settle accounts for us. He doesn't bark us into improving ourselves. He unites us to Himself in the glorious communion He has enjoyed for eternity with His Heavenly Father. He resides within us to heal the broken places and reflesh our carterized hearts. He sings us into a new mode of existence. Another thought He says, The New Testament, too is written for such a time. And so its dominant note is also one of victory and thanksgiving. Indeed, its writers, all of them, are convinced that the most monumental thing in all of human history took place in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus sings in our midst because death itself has begun working backwards. It is only fitting that we should answer his song with ours because as Twyla Paris rightly sings... All that has been taken, it shall be restored. What's my motivation for coming and singing to the Lord? What's your motivation for coming and singing to the Lord? As God's people, his freed people, his broken and hurting people, his educated people, his suburban people, his city people, his country people, his elastic boots wearing people. All of his people, as we come together and we sing, we hear God's song over us. We hear God communicating his love over and in the midst of our songs. And what is that that we're tasting in that moment as we hear God singing? I'll tell you what we're tasting we are tasting the overflow of the joy of God himself. God's joy in his gathered people, he loves it on Sunday morning when we come and we sing our songs. He is beaming over us with joy. Some of us had the messed up view that we come in, we're in Christ, we've been forgiven, our sins have been paid for to the last penny, our sins have been paid for. And we come in and the enemy whispers in our ears and says, they can worship, but not you. And into our ears comes a playback of something we've said earlier in the week, something we've done 10 years ago in our lives, guilt for sins committed in past times. And all of that is meant to accuse us and keep us from enjoying God's joy in our song. God just says, come, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name, you are mine, I'm yours. You are my treasure, I'm your treasure. Sing, sing for joy. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Do you hear his summons? Just as importantly, if not more, do you hear his promises of grace? That as we sing, we see His holiness. As we sing, we're comforted by His nearness. As we sing, we're experiencing unity in the body. As we sing, we hear the Savior's song. If you taste that and you hear God's song on Sunday mornings and you listen for that, you won't have a hard time waking up next Sunday morning. (laughs) The alarm clock will go off and what will be ringing in your heart will be today I gather with God's people and I sing and I hear him speak to me and I respond to his grace and in your heart will be this theme right when you put your feet on the floor. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? What's my motivation, God? For the Lord is a great God. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Let's pray. <sighs> Thank you for the gift of song. Teach us to sing it for your glory. Whether we're walking on the mountaintop and we're saying, Lord, your lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, truly I have a good inheritance. And my feet are in a broad place. Or we're saying, oh God, where are you in the desert of my life? Have mercy on me and come near. Lord, for all of that, by your grace, through your promise, and through your word, keep us singing. For the glory of your name and your name alone. Amen. Let's stand together
1: A crimson stain, he washed it white as snow Lord now indeed I find thy power and thine alone yours alone can change the The leper spots, change the leper spots, and melt the heart of stone. You paid it all, Jesus paid it all, all to him I own. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. let painted has paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He was it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. day in history death is beaten you have rescued me sing it out jesus is alive the empty cross the empty grave Dead. Oh, us in this area. We sang the first song this morning, holding nothing back, but would we not allow allow musical styles to hold us back from seeing and savoring your son and all that he's done for us? Would we come expectant to sing and to meet with you every time we're together for your glory, Lord, so that we might be more aware of how much you enjoy our singing? How much you enjoy seeing your children dancing around your throne. Lord, thank you for your word today to us. Lord, may it bear fruit in our lives, we pray, as a church. In your name we pray. Amen.